let's let's read a couple of verses out of Romans chapter 8 and then I'll get into explaining why this is going to be a little bit different today. We're going to start at Romans 8 verse 28 and then I'm just going to jump ahead because verse 8 uh, verse 28 is a very very famous verse but it's there in light of some things that follow it and that's what I'm going to want to show you. But it's Romans chapter 8 verse 28. The word of God says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, who are the called, according to his purpose. Now jump to verse 35, because this is all, it's all one big connected thought, but he begins to bring it to a point. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the verse that I really want to focus on today, actually I'm not focusing on a verse, I'm focusing on a concept, a concept um, that is that's called the problem of evil, and we're going to get to that. But the verse 37 well, really, 36 and 37. As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. When he says, nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us, he, what, he's not undermining what he had actually just said above. He's not saying, no, that's not going to happen. No, it is written that we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That is a, that, that, that is a very, very powerful thing to, to think on. And when he says, nay... In all these things we are more than conquerors. He means in the midst of all these. We will experience his list. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Or sword. Katrina says I'm not supposed to pronounce the W. It's there. The W is there, so I say sword. But anyway, he's not saying, no, we're not going to go through all that. He's actually saying, yes, we will go through every bit of that. It, you know, each individual one in his own way. But that those things will not separate the believer from Christ. That the believer will persevere in his believing and that he will push through. But also Christ will love the believer through it. But what I really want to talk today, talk about today, you know, and this, I, like I said, I've already apologized. I'll apologize again. This is going to be academic. It's going to feel more like a lecture than a sermon, and there's almost nothing I can do about that. I have prepared sermons on this four times over the last three or four years and never preached them because they are too academic. Um, but I, I decided that this week I really just needed to go ahead and do it. And it all started, it, it began to work in my mind again about a week ago when I seen some posts from some friends on Facebook, and it's this question, why God, why? And of course people get different answers, and 
honestly, one of the saddest stories, there's so many sad stories, but one of the saddest kind of story that you'll hear or see is when a parent is with a child in the hospital that is dying. The child is dying. Ten-year-old child. There's no point in life where it's easy to lose a loved one. It almost seems like that's the hardest possible point to me. Because if you lose a baby the day that it's born, that is unbelievably sad. But there's something about when you've had time to build memories and relationship and love for this child that when he's 10 years old, that's like the worst possible time to lose a child, it seems to me. Like I said, I'm not saying that there's any good time. There's not a good time. But I saw that story this week. And it also is... It's, it's very, very hard, too, when you know this is a Christian family and the child himself, they was saying as he was kind of, I guess, in and out of consciousness, he was praying, laying there in the bed. That's just terribly sad. Um, and when, when you lose something like that or when you see something like that happen, you do ask the question, why? Why? You know, and it's normal. And, and lots of people have lots of questions. And again, this is going to be academic, but in my mind, honestly, what was in my mind was the young ones here. Because first of all, I want you to know it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask hard questions. My son Phoenix loves to ask you the hardest possible questions that you can answer. And so that's okay. But when you do ask the questions, you want to ask them in faith. And what I mean by that is you want to ask the questions with a trust in your heart or a faith in your heart knowing that God does have the answers. In other words, you don't want to ask these questions in an accusation way. You don't want to, you don't want to say stuff like, well, why didn't God do it better? Because that's more like an accusation, really. That's more of a pride-filled type of thing. Um, and really, that... that, that, that the, when you ask the question in that way, you're really kind of already saying, if I was God, I'd have done it better, which means I'm better than God, even asking it in an accusation kind of a way. And so you want to ask these questions in a, in a faith, in a trust kind of way. That's like I was talking to Katrina. The same way that you would when you hear something about a friend, maybe someone accuses your friend of doing something that you know, no, that's outside of the character of my friend. You, you want to be... In a sense, you give the benefit of the doubt to your friend, and you really come to the defense of your friend. You know, you don't want to just jump to this, you know, and you hear some, something that happened, and you just immediately say, oh, I can't believe he done that, and he's such a terrible person. We need to have that, like, you know, the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We need, when we seek the answers, first of all, you've got to seek the answers to the tough questions. In other words, don't just ask them. Ask one or two people or whatever and give it five minutes and then just decide that there's not an answer and you're just going to go on with your life always knowing that you've got this problem with God in, your, in the back of your mind that you're going to suppress because you feel like you're supposed to to continue to fit in with a Christian crowd while this whole time you're carrying this weight of this silent question that is unanswered for you that's hindering your faith in certain ways. And so... Young and old, ask the questions. I promise you there is answers. I also promise you most of the time the answer is not going to be one sentence. 
when you're actually seeking some of the harder truths of life or some of the deeper questions, you're going to have to be willing to sit down and spend some time on it and spend some time with a person or whatever to really think through and sort through these things. But the one I want to talk about today, like I said, this is very academic. It's called the problem of evil. And the way that they word it is like this. If God is all good... He would want to prevent evil. If God is all-powerful, He could prevent evil. But evil exists. They say, therefore, an all-good and all-powerful God does not exist. And y'all may think, I've never even heard of that before. That is cited as the number one reason over a 2,000-year period when surveys are taken why do, pe- why do people deny God or why do people not believe in God? That is actually the number one reason for 2,000 years, historically speaking, that people deny God is what they call the problem of evil. They may not call it that when they are saying, I don't believe in God. They'll say, well, in fact, if you think about it, this, this, this two words, why God? Every, you, I don't even know that you can imagine a question that would follow that that isn't in some way connected to suffering, pain, the existence of evil or sin or something. People ask, why did God make the devil? That's a, that's a question that comes down to the problem of evil. They're saying, why is there evil? Why does God allow this? Why does God make this? Why did God let that happen? And so there's tons and tons of questions. Why did God make a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the first place? Why did God allow Adam and Eve to actually make a choice to sin or not to sin? Why did he do any of this stuff? And this stuff really hinders the minds of a lot of people because they think that there's just no good answers or they don't actually go and seek those answers. First, let me say, every one of those questions has a really good answer. I I don't have time to answer them all today. I really don't even have time to answer one very thoroughly. But when God made The devil, he wasn't a devil. He didn't make him as a devil. He made him as an angel. And it was the devil that became the devil, but God didn't make him that way. And the questions of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we can get into all of that, but not today. If you want to ask, ask me after church and we'll sit down and talk about it. That would be fine. So, it's true. We do see all kinds of things that we would call evil. We see earthquakes that happen and destroy homes and kill people. We see, these are what we call natural evil. We see tsunamis. There was a tsunami that hit, what was it? I don't even remember. This was like five or six years ago and they said killed like 200,000 people. We see hurricanes and tornadoes. We're very familiar with tornadoes here. And, it, and, it's, and people struggle with it because the tornado just seems to randomly just go through and destroy homes and kill people. Plagues, disease, sickness, genetic disorders, deformities, all of these things would fall under the category of natural evil. And then on top of that, there's what we call man-made evil, like war, slavery, murder, theft, tons of terrible things that happen to people. And then there's the, what the Bible calls the evil inventions of man, like nuclear bombs. Or, you know, in my opinion, uh, 
GMO so-called vaccines, you know, or GMO foods that actually cause a lot of sicknesses and problems and things like that. A lot of things that actually bring evil about. But if you can follow me on this right here, this is where you start getting an answer to that problem. I taught an apologetics class. Apologetics basically just means defending the faith. For six months on Thursday nights, about two years ago, to a group of about 15 teenagers. And the problem of evil for them was the hardest struggle that they had. And so we went through. And it, what I'm actually talking about today, I actually spent six months on Thursday nights two years ago. There are, there's lots of information and lots of resources and lots of things to think through here. But if you follow me, when we think about all of these things that we ask God why, and when we think about the examples that people give you, about some terrible thing. They say, if God, is, if God is there and God's watching, how would he have ever let that happen? And so they give you all these examples. When we begin to examine the, the examples that everybody gives, in all of these examples of what I would call the collective consciousness of people, we find a definition for evil. And the definition of evil, it's this unspoken subconscious reality that everyone has, that what they are really saying is an unjust harm to life or to living things. In other words, you've never heard anybody make a big deal over a tsunami that hit the barren ice banks of Antarctica because nobody cares. Because tsunamis alone, there's no evil there. It's just a wave of water. Or if an earthquake happens on some sort of deserted island area and the ground is just shaking, then that's not evil. Well, what is it that made the, evil, the earthquake evil in your minds? Oh, because of the destruction to life and property, the things that belong to people, or even animal life, the tsunami that killed animals and people. It's, a, it's a, when an unjust and undeserved harm comes to life and living things. That is the sort of unspoken but accepted definition of evil. So then now here's where you really got to start, start to pay attention. When they use this term evil, they are accepting an unspoken agreement that we all believe in but it just doesn't really come to the surface, and it's this, that life is very valuable. If life had no value any more than dirt, then there would be no such thing as evil. There, would be no such, there, would, there wouldn't be a reason to mourn. And so when they are saying that this destruction happened and lives were affected, lives were taken, even lives of animals, they're making an appeal to your heartstrings and to the truth, but they're not confessing that truth, and that is this, that life has an incredible value in the minds of all men. This is a universal, absolute truth. Every culture, every continent, every country, every century, throughout all of history, all of humanity agrees that life is precious. It's a gift. They don't bring that to the surface when they ask these questions, but that's what the whole problem is built upon, is that something bad has happened to living things, that life has an intrinsic value. And so the value of life is at the very core of the definition of evil. But we also find in these examples that they give, 
and examples that we come across that mankind all over the world, the whole human race, we actually even have a value system for life. In other words, the example I gave my class six or two years ago was something like this. If a little squirrel is hopping through a forest or along a cliff bank and a rock falls off and kills that little squirrel, nobody has ever said, oh, poor rock. Poor rock fell and busted to pieces. No, they say, poor squirrel. But what if there was like moss or algae on this rock, which is technically living? They also don't say poor moss because they have a value in their mind of the squirrel. The squirrel has more dignity, so to speak. He's, we have a value system for life. Like if you think about the tsunami illustration, a tsunami giant wave comes to hit, hit Antarctica <coughs> and there's 10,000 penguins killed. People are like, oh man, I hate that. I like penguins. Penguins are so cool. But they don't lose sleep over it. But if there's a hundred scientists that's killed, that's world news for weeks on end. Investigations begin to come in. What was the cause of this tsunami? Was there not someone there that is there could could we could we could we come together and put $10 million together to create an alarm system along the coast there to warn people that a tsunami is coming. Is there anything that we could do to save lives? They're never going to do that for the penguins. But the illustration goes further. Let's say there's nothing there at all, but there's five little newborn babies sitting there on the bank and they get smashed. Not only will people around the world begin to come together monetarily and, and, and put together money and support the families and the whole world laments and sorrows for the loss but then they also go to where the event happened and they build a monument and a memorial and they say lest we ever forget what happened here today you see this is a unspoken but it's in us it's in us and that's what really thinking and seeking answers does it begins to pull out these things that you didn't even realize you carried around in your mind but they're there and they're not just in your mind they're in the mind of all of humanity that we have not only do we all believe that life is extremely precious but there's actually a, a, a you know different levels of, of value to that you know if I could give hundreds of examples but no one knows the death toll of cattle for the 2011 tornado outbreak. We counted the death toll of people. Nobody even, you know, there's no memorial, there's no GoFundMe thing for the cattle or anything like that. So we all have a built-in value system to human life. But why is this the case? If you're following with me, I know it's difficult. Maybe if I was more animated and running around, it would be easier. But if you're following with me, so now we've got to ask, why is it the case that there is an accepted and it's a subconscious value system to all of human life? Why? Because everyone on the planet agrees to that. There's a few psycho people that say a mouse is a pig is a cow is a boy. The... Uh, the founder of PETA lady, but she's resisting her own inner truth there. She's resisting the truth that God has put into us. Why do we have a graduated value system for all of human life? Why is it, in other words, why is it more 
sorrowful and lamenting to the human experience when a child dies next to the 60-year-old scientist. Why is it that when the news reports an accident or a tragedy, the first thing they hammer on is the children? Because we all have an, an intrinsic value in our minds of children, but why is what I'm asking? Why? And the answer is this. It's not because they had their whole lives ahead of them. That's a small part of it, but that's not really it. It's because they were innocent. It's because they were innocent. Let me give you a more easy example to understand. Two people die in a car crash. One was the kidnapper. One was the captive. Which one do you feel more sorry for? They're the same age. Let's say a 40-year-old man kidnaps or abducts a, another 40-year-old man. And he's going to kill him or whatever, and they both die in a car crash. Which one do you actually feel sorry for? The one who was innocent in the situation. And so whenever we, when people will, mostly I'm really thinking young ones. The older ones, you may have dealt with this, you may not have. This stuff is very, this is the way that an atheist or an unbeliever will attack <coughs> the teenagers. Man, I see it a lot. And with the last group of teenagers we had here, I don't know, we probably had nearly 30 teenagers. I was getting stories constantly of things that they were being challenged with or faced with or whatever. And so it's going to happen. And when a person gives you this story, well, how could God allow this? When you look at the story that they're given, you realize that they have certain things, value systems in their own mind built into this story. Why did you, you know, this, this analogy you gave me, a little innocent child had to die. Why did you use this child as your example in your story? Oh, because number one, you believe there's a value to life. But number two, you believe there's a value to innocence. That is precious. Innocence is precious. Innocent purity is precious. There's no guilt upon this child. This child could not have possibly deserved it. That's why they're using the child as the example. This child could not have possibly deserved this. But when you actually stop and think about that, then you're saying, now, now wait a minute. If you believe that there is innocence and that this child doesn't deserve that, then that also must mean you believe there's guilt. Do you believe some people... Have, they may not deserve what happened to them, but at least you, you do believe that they were guilty. In a sense, their life was tainted by some, some things that they had done, some maybe sins they had committed or something about it. Like there may be at least a tiny little trace in your mind that thinks, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe they've done some things. Maybe they, just, maybe they just got what they had coming to them. But when people appeal to children and the sorrow and the suffering that happens, they do so on the basis of two things, that life is very, very precious and valuable. Number two, children are innocent. But by doing that, they're also exposing something that's written in the law of the hearts of all mankind around the world, and that is that there's such a thing as guilt. There is such a thing as not innocent. Follow with me if you can. I know it's academic, but now let's go to the next step. How can there be such a thing as guilt if no laws have been broken? If there is no moral law, if there's no absolute moral law on the conscience or the heart of all of mankind, how can, how can there be such a thing as guilt? In fact, if there is not such a thing as guilt, there actually is no such thing as innocence. Because innocence is the absence of guilt. But when we realize that guilt exists, that must mean a moral law exists. 
Something written in the hearts of all men. Paul deals with this stuff. I could have gone through 50 verses to lay all this out for you, exactly what I'm talking about. Everything that I'm talking about, I get from here. To begin with, Romans chapter 2, Paul deals with this. That the proof of God's moral law is evident in all mankind. Because you don't even have to teach them, but you don't have to tell them the law. All you've got to do is go and take something away from them. And they say, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's mine. Suddenly you realize, oh, you, so you do know that it's wrong to take something from someone because when someone does it to you, you don't like it. All you've got to do to teach them that it's wrong to hit a person is hit them. And they're like, you can't do that. That's wrong. That's not right. So we all have this law written in our hearts. And our thoughts, as Paul says it, our thoughts and actions accuse us or excuse us. So long story short... Man believes, even the man that wrote this problem of evil, which, by the way, that man is actually in the Bible. and His name is Epicurus. And his followers are found in Acts chapter 17. And Paul goes to deal with the, the, the Epicureans, which were followers of this man named Epicurus, who was the first person who penned the problem of evil. This has actually been dealt with, like I said, all throughout Scripture. But we, have, we see that even that man believes that life is valuable. It's precious, or he wouldn't have a problem with something bad happening in the first place. And that he believes that there is such a thing as innocence, which means he believes there's such a thing as guilt, which must mean there's such a thing as an absolute moral law written in the hearts of all men. And it also means that the man is aware of it. What I mean, the man is conscious of it. The man knows in himself the difference between good and evil, the difference between right and wrong. And on side note, I find it very ironic, honestly, that the thing that most people use as their reason to deny God is the very thing that God said would happen to you if you, if you was disobedient to Him in the first place. The, very, the number one problem that all of humanity has with God is a result of the decision of humanity. It's really a problem that we should have with ourselves. But we don't ascribe guilt to animals. Right? You've never, you've never you know, you, you see the raccoon or whatever come and take something you don't think he needs to be charged as a thief. You just think he's just, he's just doing what he does. You don't sit there and condemn him as a guilty. I mean, you may shoot him, but you don't actually ascribe moral guilt to the creature. Because you know that this, this animal doesn't have a conscience of that. Listen, these things are very boring at times, but they're actually very powerful truths that's built into the fabric of our reality that we do realize that we have a sense and an understanding and a moral obligation to do good. We, have, we, we, we understand all of these things. And we also know that animals do not. There's not a legal system for animals. We know that they don't understand it. And all of these things testify to the truth of a good God. And that's what I want to end up showing you. Where am I going with all of this? To try and bring it to a close as fast as I can and give a little bit of application. 
when a person says God does not exist because evil exists, or when they even say evil exists, what we need to think in our mind immediately is that actually, uh, if God doesn't exist, then neither does evil. Because if God doesn't exist, you don't actually have true value to your life. Any more than the rock. If life is not a created thing and created in the image of God and even the breath of life that's in the animals, if that's not something that comes from God and if there's no actual preciousness to life because there is no God, in other words, if you accept the evolutionary worldview and that you are nothing other than the product of particles that have collided together over millions of years, and life is, has no intention, it's an accident. There's nothing any more precious about it than a, than a speck of sand out there. Sand is just particles colliding together. When you say there is no God, then there is no real value to life. There is no value to life. Any, anything that you have in your mind of a value to life is an illusion. It's an illusion. It's a trick of your mind. Because you're nothing more than a bag of chemicals walking around. At the end of the day, you're going to die, and the whole planet's going to die, and the whole universe is going to die, and suffer what they call heat death, and everything will cease to exist, and there was never a point to any of it. And there won't even be a memory left. And the monuments, and the gravestones, it'll all been pointless. If there is no God, life does have no meaning. And if life has no meaning, there is no, there is no value system. There is no such thing as innocence or guilt. There is no such thing as a moral law. If God doesn't exist, even what you would think of as a moral law, that's just a convention of humanity. I mean, look, that's the law for you. It's not for me. And so whenever we say, here's my, here's my point. How, how can I get this to kind of stick in your mind? I'm not talking today about how to actually deal with a person that's suffering. That's not what I'm talking about. I preached that sermon three months ago. It's called Jesus Feels Your Pain. God became a man and suffered. Jesus actually cried. Our God is a God that can cry. It says Jesus wept. One more interesting fact. Did you know that human beings is the only creature on planet that actually can cry tears of sorrow? In fact, I don't think any other mammal, there's a couple of mammals that actually have a tear duct, but it's not, they can't actually cry from it. It's just to wet their eye. That's it. We're created to weep with them that weep. We can, when I see a person crying in sorrow, you know, my, my first response is not to go to them and be like, hey, let me tell you why you shouldn't do this. No, the response is, oh man, let me cry with you, brother. The humans have the ability to experience empathy, which that literally means to share one's pain, to actually feel it. And so what I'm talking about today is not necessarily the solution to the problem of evil and how we act. But I, what I want to eliminate for you is the logical barrier that hinders people's faith. These questions that plague them, that eat like worms in their mind at times, and they say, how could it be? How could that be? Why this? Why that? And what you end up coming to, my friends, is the reality that if you say God doesn't exist because evil exists, you actually can now no longer even say evil exists. The argument ends up completely undermining itself. So what do we do, though? We are faced with the reality that evil does exist, man. But also, the more inescapable truth, God exists. So to me, the, the question 
the right question to ask. When you want to ask questions, you want to ask the right question. And if you're a Christian believer, this is the right question. Does God have a good reason for the evils that exist? Does he have a good reason? And the answer is absolutely. Multiple good reasons. And when, if we had time to start breaking them all down, you would never say again, if I was God, I wouldn't do it this way. I wouldn't have done that. Why that? You would never say that way. You'd say there's not a more perfect, plausible, possible way to have ever done it than the exact way that he done it. The way that God done it shows the highest measure of love for humanity that could possibly be shown. Just a couple of brief examples real fast. And let me say, in the definition of evil, part of the definition was an unjust harm, an undeserved harm. We don't call it evil when a man is serving a year in jail because he robbed the bank. That's not evil because he's in jail. That's justice. You don't call it evil when a child is grounded for a week because they broke all the rules. That's not evil. That's justice. And so many of the things that we would call evil are actually not evil. <laughs> They're justice being executed upon our lives by God, like the curse. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat the bread all the days of your life. And the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles and all of these things. Why? Because you did wrong, Adam. That's why. That's, this is not evil. This is justice. This is God delivering out a deserved punishment to teach you a lesson. And so many of the things that we experience in what we would call the fallen world is not evil, actually. It's justice. But perhaps more importantly, and what we need to keep in mind, that's why I read verse 28. So many of the testimonies of suffering that you will ever see or hear actually resulted in a greater good. I mean, so many. The first one that comes to mind is Stephen in Acts chapter 8, 7. He's being stoned to death for good. Like he did good. He didn't do anything wrong. So an evil, in a sense, is happening to him. A wickedness is happening. People are sinning against him. They're stoning him. They're killing him. And from that episode, when Paul is standing there watching that, because the garments of Stephen was laid at the feet of Paul, and Paul was not a believer. Paul says himself, I was, cons I was the one that consented to his death. In other words, I was the one that said, kill that man. Paul is there. His name's not Paul yet. It's Saul. But in this terrible suffering that a man experienced, Paul ends up being dealt with in his heart. And he ends up being converted and becomes the greatest apostle ever. And through the ministry of Paul, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been saved. And in some sense, Stephen, the martyr, can sit there in heaven and say, I played a part in the millions that were saved because I gave my life for the gospel's sake. And so there's, and there's so many. I mean, there's, but that, so that's big scale. But even in our lives, I honestly do believe this. Sometimes sickness comes into your home and it brings your family to prayer. And in the end, if the child recovers, or the parent recovers or whatever, the whole family in some sense is, has a renewed sense of appreciation for the lives that they've been given and they have a renewed sense of a relationship with God. And so all things do work together for the good of them that love God or are called according to His purpose. And it may be very difficult, very difficult at times to see what is that good.
like when my son almost drowned. I've talked to you guys. Well, he did drown, honestly. <laughs> he drowned. He just came back to breathing somehow. I mean, he was, you know, eyes rolled back and his head, mouth open as she pulls him out of the pond. In a sense, that was a very small, short window of an experience that we got to glimpse into the world, just very briefly. God didn't put anything more on us than what we could bear. And we could only bear it for a minute. And then he's breathing again. Thank God for that. But no matter what happens to us, we must know the truth. That all things do work together for the good of them that love God. It, I mean, so many other examples too. Like even Abraham Lincoln. I was thinking about this one. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln. A guy that should, he was killed. Ended up turning the hearts of the people eight months later to put an end to slavery in America. So a terrible evil to his family, to Abraham Lincoln himself, and to the people that suffered because of the loss, turns eight months later and his lifelong cause there has come to be fulfilled through his death in a sense. And, and slavery is ended. And so there's so many things, my friends. There's so many things. Does God have a good reason? There's, by the way, the free will argument and all that kind of stuff, I want to deal with that because that to me is major, but I don't have time today. That is so powerful. It's so extremely powerful, the gift of free will that God has given man, but I don't have time to get into it today. What I want to leave you with today is mostly for the young ones. You are going to be faced with questions. You're going to have questions in your own mind, like why did God do it this way? Why did God do it that way? Why did I have to lose this loved one? Why did my son get hurt? Why this? Why that? The only actual answer is in the Word of God, but more importantly, the only solution is also in the Word of God. The Bible and Christianity, true Christianity, is the only thing on planet Earth that can actually give you a solution to the truth that there is a problem of evil. And that is that one day, all these wrongs will be righted. One day, well, even really, I mean, when Christ came and died for the sin of the whole world, there is a solution to the problem of evil right there, and that's the only place that you can go. And so when things get bad, you want to have in your mind the right response. The right response is not to back away from God and say, how could God this and how could God that? The right response is actually to run to God because God's the only one that can comfort certain pains. And God's the only one that can actually have a full empathy for your pain. God's the only one that can bring you out of that pain, and God's the only one that can show you what was the ultimate good that's going to come from that pain. So the right response to the hardest questions is not to back away from God. It's not to come in doubt, but it's to come in faith and rely more heavily than you ever have on the truth of the Bible.